There is something so powerful about the church gathering together today and lifting all of our voices together in worship. We sing to the name of the Lord today, and we see the evidence of His grace and His mercy. Amen? Amen. Would you stand together and let's join our voices together and sing together. At your name. At your name, the mountains shake and crumble. Yeah, yeah. 
Hey, Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Church family, it's so good to see you here to worship with us this morning. And as we've already experienced baptism this morning and our first worship song this morning, I feel God's presence here this morning and know that he is going to do amazing things in our lives this, this, in our lives this morning if we'll just allow him to work and to move in our hearts and in our lives. If you were a visitor, we'd ask that you would um, fill out our connection card. And at the end of the service, you'll have an opportunity to meet our pastor, Dr. Stuart Holloway, out in the foyer. And he has a gift for you, um, his book, The Privilege of Worship. And if you um, have any other information that you need to update or any prayer requests, we ask that you fill that out as well. And we will receive those at the end of the service. But we are glad that we have come to the house of the Lord this morning to praise and worship our Father, our Yahweh, our King of kings. Pray with me now. Father, we are so glad that we do have the privilege to worship you this morning, God, freely. And Lord, I thank you for the three that came this morning for baptism, God. We know you are at work in the hearts and lives of our people, Lord God, and we are trusting you that you are um, still at work, and we know that you're still at work amongst us, God. Be with Stuart as he preaches in a little while. May we hear what you have to say to us this morning, God. And God, we offer our, our praise to you this morning, worship to you, Father. We love you and we thank you for your work that you're doing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Bible says that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. That means he loves to hear his people sing. Amen? And so this morning we sing some great hymns of our faith. I want to hear you sing. I want you to join us in worship. Since Jesus came into my heart, why don't you stand to your feet and let's sing these great hymns today.
Isn't it great to worship the Lord? Amen. Man, thank you for singing out and just celebrating the Lord today. And we're going to continue doing that as we give and as we hear from God's Word. But today, we wanted to take a moment to issue a challenge to the church, a challenge to all of ourselves uh, to finish our budget year strong. Uh, between next Sunday, October 28th, through December 31st, there are 10 weeks and so we're calling this challenge 10 in 10. And the challenge is to give 10% more over the next 10 weeks. So whatever you normally give, try to give 10% in addition to it. So if you give $100, you give 110. If you give 200, you give 20. Everybody got the math? Really easy. <laughs> 10 in 10. Uh, our finance committee has asked us to challenge the church in this way. Several of them, along with several of our staff, have already started this challenge over the last month. And uh, we want to finish 2018 strong so that we might fully fund everything that's uh, going on and be ready for 2019. Uh, currently, off and on, depending on the week, we're running about $100,000 behind budget. Now, that doesn't mean we're $100,000 in the red, but it means if we funded everything that's in the budget, we would be. So uh, we, of course, have held back spending so that we can uh, stay in the black, but we want to make sure that we meet budget and can fund all of the ministries and uh, activities here at the church. So if you join us in that, we would be really grateful to uh, see what God can do over the next 10 weeks through 10 and 10 Finish Strong Challenge. Um, perhaps you're not yet giving. This would be a great time to plug in and, and start seeing what God can do. Uh, as a tither and even in addition to tithing myself, I can tell you that God always meets your needs. Now, he doesn't always give you everything you want, 
but he always meets your needs. And so you can trust the Lord in that. Uh, so I challenge you, if you've not yet given, to be a generous giver in the weeks to come. We're going to pray and ask the Lord to continue to guide us in our service. Logan Stafford, our deacon on call, is going to come and offer our prayer for the offering. Logan, come on up. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, watch over us in the weeks to come. Lord, help us to meet this challenge. Help us to give often and generously. Help us to give us everything we can. Lord, uh, watch over us as we go about our week. Help us to uh, follow your will always and come back safely. Amen. Come to wonder 
Turning your copy of God's Word to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57, continuing our series in John's Gospel for a message I've entitled, Truth from a Snake. You know, sometimes uh, God speaks in ways we cannot imagine. In Exodus chapter 3, we read that one day Moses was on Mount Horeb tending the flocks of his father-in-law. When he saw a strange sight, he saw a bush that was on fire, but that did not burn up. And God spoke to Moses from that bush. He called Moses to go back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And Moses had a full conversation with a bush that day. At least God from the bush. Sometimes God speaks in ways we cannot imagine. In Numbers chapter 22 and following, the Gentile prophet Balaam was on his way to Moab when an angel blocked his way three times. The angel was invisible to Balaam, but it was visible to his donkey. Well, when the donkey stopped at the angel's presence, Balaam got Furious and more furious and furious each of the three times. So finally, Balaam beat the stew out of the donkey. And God opened the donkey's mouth. And the donkey said, What have I done to you that you should have beat me these three times? And Balaam conversed with the donkey. And came to realize that the animal had perceived God's will better than he had. And so Balaam was able to receive a word from the Lord. His eyes were opened and he was able to continue in his calling. In Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar was holding a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. And as they drank wine and as they worshipped foreign gods, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote four words on the wall. No one could interpret what those words meant until Daniel was brought in. And Daniel said that God was saying that Belshazzar's reign was over. And later that very night, it was. Sometimes God speaks in ways we cannot imagine. He he doesn't typically speak through bushes and donkeys and hands that appear out of nowhere. And I'm grateful he doesn't. I don't know about you, but I don't think my heart could take that. Generally, when God speaks to us, he speaks in generally three ways. One, through his word. Two, through the inner promptings of his Holy Spirit. And three, through other godly people who pour into our lives. But scripture does remind us that sometimes God speaks in ways we cannot imagine. And in our passage today, God speaks through a snake. Not the reptile variety, the human variety. The snake's name is Caiaphas. 
He was the high priest the year that Jesus was crucified and the year that we are reading about in this section of John's gospel. And so we pick up the account in John chapter 11, verses 45 and following. This is right on the heels of the resurrection of Lazarus. Therefore, because of the resurrection of Lazarus, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. The resurrection of Lazarus caused quite a stir. A four-day-old dead man walking out of a tomb was a never-before-seen, all-out, life-changing and death-changing miracle. In fact, to this day, the little village of Bethany is also known as Azariah, a name derived from the name Lazarus. So as with most of Jesus' miracles, there was an immediate division. If you notice, John tells us that many of the Jews saw the miracle and put their faith in Jesus. But some ran away to the Pharisees to tattle on Jesus. I want you to circle those words, many and some. I'm grateful for the many who believed that day. A few days later, they would be leading the procession and leading the call as Jesus walked to Jerusalem and they would be crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But there were also the some. And they did not believe. And in a few days, they would be leading the charge, crying out, crucify him. You know, even today, there are many who believe and follow God, but there will still be some. There are always some who do not believe, some who cannot or will not see the work of God even when it's right in front of them. Now, we haven't seen a four-day dead man coming out of a tomb in a while, but we have seen lives transformed. We do see provision made. We do see healing take place at the answer to prayer. We see relationships restored. We see marriages healed. We see prodigals come home. And many believe as that happens, but some do not. Even in the church. Don't be a part of the unbelieving some. You see, that day... The psalm run off to tattle to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees apparently tell the chief priest. Uh, we think the chief priest had given the Pharisees the job of dealing with Jesus. And apparently the Pharisees were failing at their job. And so the chief priests are going to step in and take charge. And they all get together and call a special business meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jewish nation. It was comprised of 71 members made up of basically three groups. Uh, the chief priest, then the party of the Sadducees, of which most of the priests were members, and then the party of the Pharisees. The chief priest and the Sadducees made up the majority of the Sanhedrin, and the Pharisees consisted of an influential minority. The Pharisees and Sadducees were as different and at each other's throats as Republicans and Democrats in Congress today. The Pharisees were not a political party at all. All they cared about was living according to the details of the law, keeping every single jot 
and tittle. They didn't care who governed them as long as they were allowed to keep the law. The Sadducees, however, were intensely political. They were the wealthy and aristocratic party and collaborated with the Romans. They didn't really care who ruled over them either as long as they had their position and they had their power and they had their prominence. And so the doctrinal beliefs of the Sadducees and Pharisees were different as well. In fact, this whole resurrection business was one of the deep divides. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection under any circumstances, whereas the Pharisees did. So naturally, the whole Lazarus incident caused no little stir. And while they may have been divided on many things, they were united on one thing. This Galilean named Jesus had to go. The Sanhedrin convened and the air was tense as tempers among both parties flared. And the rhetoric was strong, we see there in the last part of verse 47. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are we accomplishing, they asked. We've been monitoring his activities. We've been watching everything he did. We've been debating with him. But it's to no avail. He just keeps on performing more miracles. It started with him raising a a lame man up to be able to walk. Then he made a blind from birth man to be able to see. Now he's taken a four-day dead man out of the tomb and raised him to life. If this kind of stuff keeps going on, everyone is going to follow him. The crowds are already growing. And if he, the crowds follow him, then the Romans are going to come and take away both our place and our nation. Underline that word there, everyone, in verse 48. It's in It's an exaggeration on their part, but it's not necessarily an exaggeration in what God intended. For you know, as John told us in chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation through Christ would be made available to everyone. Unfortunately, salvation was the last thing on these guys' minds. You see, the Sanhedrin figured that Jesus was gathering followers so that he could raise an insurrection against the Romans and take over the nation himself. And that could go one of two ways. Either Jesus would fail because the Romans would squash him or he would prevail. Either way, the Sanhedrin was worried about their place. If Jesus was even moderately successful against the Romans, but they still squashed him, then they would see him as a major threat and all the Jews as a major threat, and they would take complete control of Israel, pulling all power from the Sanhedrin. If Jesus did happen to prevail against the Romans, well, the Sanhedrin knew just how much Jesus thought about them. So they would be out. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about my cussing Bible-reading prisoner nicknamed Karate. 
who's in the Old Testament class that I've been privileged to teach for LC this semester over the Pollock Federal Prison. And karate is getting closer to coming to faith. I mean, it is a day-to-day thing. So keep praying for him and pray for those other prisoners who are witnessing to him. But karate still comments on things in unredeemed prisoner speech. And when we were talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees the other day, karate said, well, these guys were just full of something. I can't exactly say what karate said they were full of, but it was perhaps one of the most accurate descriptions of the Pharisees and Sadducees I've ever heard. That's why these members of the Sanhedrin were so concerned about themselves. The resurrection had forced their hand. They could not let Jesus continue unchecked. But what should they do? What could they do? You see, this group was not gathered to seek truth about Jesus. No one asked, well, was Lazarus really dead when they put him in the tomb? Or did Jesus really raise him to life? Nobody asked those questions. You know why? Because they knew the answers to them. They knew Lazarus was really dead. And they knew Lazarus now was really alive. Uh, No one asked, is Jesus really legit in performing all these miracles? No one asked it because they knew he was legit. They were there. They saw them happen. They had questioned the blind man. God had, uh, Jesus had made it abundantly clear that he was at least a miracle worker. And so these guys apparently believed Jesus worked miracles. But they didn't care about all that. Because they were insecure, paranoid, spoiled brats. All they cared about was their place. Did you notice that's what they mentioned first? In their statement, that the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Still today, we can put ourselves and our own interest before God. Even those of us who claim to follow the Lord. And that is the base of sin. When we are self-centered, we cannot be God-centered. When we're self-controlled in our own way, over our own life, we can't be God-controlled. And when we're self-centered and self-controlled, we can become horribly sinful. That's what happens with these guys. The air in the viper nest of the Sanhedrin was thick. And finally, Caiaphas, who was high priest that momentous year, had been priest for several years before and would continue to be priest for several years after. Finally, Caiaphas had enough. And Caiaphas, just a little bit about him, he may have been high priest, but there was nothing really priestly about him. He was not a picture of holiness. He was a political placement by the Roman procurator. Caiaphas was a cold, calculating, shrewd, ecclesiastical climber. He didn't care about Jesus. He didn't care about the people. He really didn't care about worship. What he cared about was himself and keeping his powerful position. The Jewish historian Josephus said that the Sadducees and Pharisees were often so rude to one another that their discourse with one another was very rough as with strangers. So picture the Kavanaugh hearings in Congress and you pretty much have a good picture of what the Sanhedrin was like. And Caiaphas demonstrates that as he raises his voice in verse 49. 
Caiaphas spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now what's interesting is Caiaphas said they didn't know nothing at all. He really didn't know anything at all himself. Because he spoke truth as a snake. It's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. In case we miss what Caiaphas unknowingly said, John makes sure we don't in verses 51 and following. John explains, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Caiaphas, this snake of a leader, is used by God to make one of the clearest prophecies about Jesus in all of Scripture. And also one of the clearest statements of, the, of what the death of Jesus meant. That Jesus, one, would die for the world. And that world included, as John describes, the Jewish nation and all the other scattered children of God. All of those throughout history who would come and place their faith in Jesus Christ, including you and me. Jesus would die for them. John shows us that both Jew and Gentile together had, could come together as part of God's family through Jesus Christ. Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying. What he meant was that it would be better for them to take out Jesus than for the Romans to take out them. But that day, God brought forth truth from this snake. And the official decision was that Jesus must die. One must die so that the nation may be saved. That's interesting. 1,500 years before this, Moses had stood atop Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. Now, since the days of Adam, when God first created humanity, God had prescribed that an offering should be made, a sacrificial offering should be made when one approached God. But to Moses, God specified these offerings and gave special meaning to the sacrificial offerings and let them know that they, these sacrifices were attached to a covering of man's sin. So when this prescribed animal was given to be offered, a bull, a lamb, a goat, that animal would die in the place of the person confessing their sin and bringing the offering. That animal's blood was seen as a covering of the person's sins. Why blood? That's kind of gross to us today. It's because life is in blood. The greatest and most precious commodity of life is blood. Without it, you die. Sin is the greatest offense against God, no matter what that sin is. And it takes death to cover sin. It takes blood to cover sin. And so therefore, through the sacrificial system, one died daily for one. 
At the same time there on Mount Sinai, as God was prescribing all these sacrifices, he also instituted feasts and festivals. And one of those was called the Day of Atonement. In Hebrew, it's Yom Kippur. Yom for day, Kippur for covering. The Day of Covering. Or the Day of Atonement, at one when God and man come together again. And on this particular day, in this very sacred, probably the most sacred of holy days, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies in the temple. It was the only day that the high priest or anyone entered the Holy of Holies. And part of the prescription of that day was the high priest went through elaborate preparations of spiritual cleansing and washing and offering sacrifices on behalf of himself and his family. But he also offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. And one of the most vivid things that he did was he took two goats. One of those goats was slaughtered and offered as a sacrifice for the people's sins. The other goat was taken alive and the priest would pray and confess over that goat all the sins of the people and then send that goat out into the wilderness. It's where we get our word scapegoat from. And it was a picture that God had covered the sins of the people with the blood and now he had forgotten the sins of the people by sending them out into the wilderness. It was the day of at one when God and man were reconciled. It was Yom Kippur, the day of the covering. But on the day of atonement, one died annually for many. But here, in this truth from the snake, we find the ultimate plan of God. And that is in Jesus. One died once for all. Now, I don't know about you, but if given the choice of A, B, or C, I'm going to choose C. One died once for all. The theological term for this is substitutionary atonement. That Jesus steps in as a substitute for us to make atonement with God. It's also known as the vicarious suffering of Christ. We use big words because big words have meaning. And the big meaning is Jesus died in our place. During the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of England, sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes. And the execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. Knowing that this sentence was going to be proclaimed, um, the man's fiance climbed into the belfry tower, grabbed hold of the clapper of the bell and hung there so that when it was rung, she would swing and the bell could not sound. When the bell did not sound, Cromwell and his officials sent to find out what was wrong. They found the lady. They brought her to Cromwell to account for her actions. And when she did, she wept as she showed him her bruised and bleeding hands. Cromwell's heart was touched by the love of this lady. And he said, your lover will not die because of your sacrifice curfew will never ring tonight you know the bell sounding the time of execution will never ring for those of us who trust Christ because he took our place one died once for all and the writer of Hebrews explains this most clearly in Hebrews chapter 10 the Hebrew writer explains the idea of Christ substitution for us Hebrews is kind of a commentary on Leviticus looking back 
through the cross. And so the Hebrew writer says in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Sacrifices day after day, year after year, one dying for one, one dying for many, repeated endlessly, but to no avail, that blood might cover the sins, but it could never take them away. The blood of bulls and rams and goats is just that. It was meant for the people to say, if there was just one lamb who would take away all sins for all people, for all time. The Hebrew writer continues, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus came for the purpose of being the one who would die once for all. In verse 11, the Hebrew writer says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds their sins and lost acts. I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven... There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Why? Because one died once for all. People find all kind of ways to deal with their sins and be relieved of their burdens and their guilt. And No one sacrifices animals today, but... People often sacrifice on the altars of other things. Some people sacrifice on the altar of success, hoping that somehow they will gain enough prominence or money or influence that somehow they can drown away their burdens. Others go to the altar of substance abuse to try to drown away those burdens and those sins. Other sacrifices uh, are given on the altar of religion, thinking that if I do enough stuff in a religion or in the church, that somehow I will appease this empty hole in my heart. Others sacrifice on the altar of social service, thinking that if we give enough to the needy or to the poor, uh, not out of love for God, but to try somehow to gain merit and relieve the burden of sin. But no matter what we do, it's never enough. Because we all fall short of the glory of God. 
There's nothing that measures up. The blood of goats and bulls will never be enough. The blood, sweat, and tears of our life will never be enough. Our sin debt is great. And so that's why only Jesus has the power of salvation in his blood. So 2,000 years ago, one died once for all. It's always been the plan. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord, ha- but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The New Testament opens with John the Baptist declaring, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John chapter 1 verse 29. Jesus himself declared that his mission in Matthew 20, 28, he said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul further explained the idea of Jesus' substitutionary atonement in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 when he said God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter explained Jesus' vicarious suffering in 1 Peter 3, 18, when he said, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring them to God. Do you see how right Caiaphas was? It really is better for you and for me that one man die for us than for all to have to die. And it's better for one to die once for all than for one to die daily for one or even one to die annually for many. What an amazing work Jesus did for us. But because of Jesus' blood, it's so costly. Because his blood is so costly, it's not just dumped on everybody. We're not talking about universalism here. Because it's so costly... It's particularly applied as each person comes to faith in Christ on his own. As we repent of our sins, as we turn from that life without Christ and we say, Christ, I need you to come into my life. I need you to forgive me of my sins. And I, in return, am going to give you my life. And I'm going to live for you. And when you do that, his blood is poured over your sin and your sin is covered forever and it's forgiven for good. So if you've never received Jesus Christ, would you do so today? It really does change people, even people who thought they knew Jesus already. Charles Wesley and his brother John were ordained English ministers in the Church of England. And they were very methodical, very holy, very focused on God, but they were trapped in legalism. They made a mission trip to the American colonies, specifically the colony of Georgia, and it was a great failure. And the brothers went back home broken and literally physically sick. After the return, Charles and his brother John met a group of people who were really on fire for the Lord, who urged these guys to look more deeply at the state of their soul. Sometime later, in May of 1738, once again ill, Charles was reading Martin Luther's book on Galatians, and he was convicted. He wrote, At midnight I gave myself to Christ, assured that I was safe, whether sleeping or waking. He also journaled, I now found myself at peace with God 
and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ, I saw that by faith I stood. Two days later, Charles began writing a hymn, which we now believe to be the hymn, And Can It Be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approached the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Is that your story today? Have you experienced a revolutionary transformation in your life? Because you should. Jesus brings the dead to life. Even the good dead are still dead and need to be raised. Even those who think they aren't dead need to be raised. And he came. And died once so that all of us could know Christ. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ in your Lord and Savior, we want to give you the opportunity to do that today. In just a moment, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. It says, you are my all in all. That should be true. If he's not your all in all, then you need to be saved today. And we invite you to come and to say, Pastor, I want to trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It may be also that the Lord's been leading you to come and unite with this church family. As we continue to grow and strive to reach this area for you, we encourage you to come and trust him today. So after I pray, we're going to stand and sing. And you come immediately as Christ presents himself to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for how you love us, and how you died for us on the cross. Help us, Lord Jesus, to follow your will for our lives today. May those who need to be saved be saved today. May those who need to turn back to you turn back to you today. And may those of us who need to follow a call on our lives follow that call today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and sing.